so after my youngest was born in 2018, shortly after he was born, I had an IUD put in. And then about a year and a half later, this was fairly early on in, well, about halfway through COVID, I guess, 2021. I'd been having some, not crazy symptoms, but things that made me think, you know, I'm, I think I want to get this IUD removed. So I had it removed in the spring of 2021. And then a few days later, I started hemorrhaging, which was, you know, with an IUD, I barely had a period. It was pretty minimal. So this was a shock for me and like passing clots and all that not so fun stuff. So uh, initially I went to the ER to get that investigated and they did an ultrasound and that's when they had found quite a large uterine fibroid. Now I had known that this was there for many years, even before I had both my sons, but it was obviously small and didn't cause any issues with my pregnancies. But now it had grown to the point where it was causing some pretty heavy bleeding. So initially they treated me with uh, tranexamic acid and I followed up with a new OB at the time. So my symptoms from there were extremely heavy menstrual periods. So I would take the tranexamic acid each month and it got to the point where I became quite anemic, which was troublesome for many reasons. But prior to having the IUD removed, I had noticed now looking back that, you know, I was having some like urges to pee more than, you know, one would expect and some pain with intercourse, which I'd actually had off and on for years from my late 20s up until that point. Never really connected the dots there. You just heard from Amanda Weston, a research administrator at the University Health Network in Toronto, who was diagnosed with endometriosis when she had surgery to remove her uterine fibroids. Like many of the one million Canadians who have endometriosis, Amanda's journey was neither predictable nor straightforward. Endometriosis has been labeled as a missed disease due to its complex etiology and long time to diagnosis, which can take an average of 9 to 10 years. So why does it take so long to get diagnosed with endo? And what are some of the other contributors to this being a missed disease? Our episode team was curious to investigate these questions. For centuries, conditions primarily affecting women have been overlooked. More recently, there have been advances in technology and business that improve women's health care. In this two-part episode series, we dive into the world of women's health to explore these ideas. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that the conditions we discuss today are primarily recognized in cisgendered women and that gendered language was used throughout the episode. However, it is important to note that individuals of other genders are impacted by these conditions and face additional barriers to receiving a diagnosis and accessing treatment. We would also like to acknowledge the long history of science and medicine as tools of oppression against Indigenous peoples, and the barriers to healthcare that are still experienced by Indigenous peoples in Canada today. My name is Hannah. And I'm Maddie. Welcome to episode 117 of Raw Talk Podcast. To start this journey, we wanted to better understand what endometriosis is and its underlying causes. So we spoke to Dr. Jamie Croft, an obstetrician gynecologist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Dr. Croft specializes in low-risk obstetrics and minimally invasive gynecologic surgery and is an expert on endo and its treatment. So endometriosis is a condition where tissue that's similar to the tissue that lines the uterine cavity or the inside of the womb gets deposited outside of the uterus. 
And then every time a patient has their menses, those little deposits of tissue that are throughout the pelvis can get inflamed and that's what can cause symptoms. So patients with endometriosis may be totally asymptomatic or they may have considerable symptoms. They could present with painful menses, uh, pain with voiding or urination, pain with bowel movements, pain with intercourse. Those are some of the more typical symptoms. And then, as I mentioned, some could be asymptomatic. And because endometriosis can cause infertility, some patients are diagnosed at the time when they're trying to conceive as part of that journey. There's some much more rare symptoms if endometriosis is found at more distant sites. And the amount of endometriosis doesn't always correlate with the patient's symptoms. So some patients could have one or two small lesions and have a huge amount of pain, and other patients can have a large amount of disease present in their pelvis and actually have no pain whatsoever. And I've had patients where they present with a blockage in their urinary system, and that's how they find out that they have endometriosis. They may have back pain and a swollen kidney, and before that, they didn't even know. Can I ask, how does the deposit of that tissue impact the body? Is it kind of inflammatory in nature? Do we know how it gets there and what it causes? Does it change depending on where we find it in the body? It's a great question and a lot remains unknown with respect to endometriosis in terms of the pathophysiology of how it arises and why people develop endometriosis, as well as, you know, why it occurs and how it progresses. I mentioned there's multiple theories of why it forms, but we don't truly know why it does. So one of the theories is that of retrograde menstruation. And retrograde menstruation means that when somebody has their period, obviously the blood and tissue comes out the vagina, but some of it goes back out through the ends of the fallopian tubes into the pelvis. But that happens actually in 90% of patients who menstruate, but only about 10% of patients have endometriosis. So we don't know why it actually implants when it comes back into the pelvis. We think maybe there's a genetic factor or some sort of immune-mediated effect, but we actually don't know why the deposits happen. But, you know, I definitely do see, and I think a lot of us see family trees where parents, siblings have endometriosis in patients who are affected. So I think likely there's some genetic factor that we just don't know yet. Understanding the underlying causes of endometriosis is further complicated by the diverse experiences of the disease across individuals. Like Dr. Croft touched on, the presentation of symptoms can look drastically different, making the study and diagnosis of the disease even more complex. Amanda, like many others, had an individual symptom experience and, like many others, didn't have a clear path to her diagnosis of endometriosis. Let's hear more about the ups and downs of her diagnosis journey. Yeah, so interestingly enough, like I had mentioned, I've had some discomfort with intercourse since my late 20s. So I did go for pelvic ultrasound just as an investigation. This was before I had my kids. 
and they noted a small fibroid, like less than a centimeter at the time, and I was referred to a new OB after that acute episode. He was monitoring me throughout, and so the first question was, you know, like, what what causes this? They don't really know. You know, there's a number of factors they consider cause fibroids. What can we do to fix the problem? So right away, the answer was surgically. This is something that could probably be dealt with. And he did put in a referral to a surgeon that I ended up having the surgery with about a year and a half later. So I didn't receive that diagnosis until after I'd had the surgery to remove the fibroid. They, when they were in there, I had a laparoscopic myomectomy. And when they were in there, they found three areas, I guess, of endometriosis. And it's funny, the doctor's just like, oh yeah, we got, you know, we got the fibroid, surgery went well, and you had some endometriosis, so we took that out. And that was kind of the extent of it. It obviously affects everyone differently, but at the same time, it was also kind of validating to hear, and you know, you look up the symptoms of endometriosis and you think, oh yeah, okay, that all kind of makes sense. And then you wonder, like, how long was that there? You know, I've had some friends who have taken uh, years to get a diagnosis of endometriosis. So at the same time, I also felt kind of lucky that I was able to get this surgery. They found it because I'm pretty sure that's the only way you can actually determine that you have it is to like get a biopsy or some form of invasive procedure to get the tissue and see that it is endometriosis. So, yeah, it was it was kind of validating at that point. And there are multiple ways to diagnose endometriosis. In the past, certainly when I did my training and I was a medical student, the traditional way of diagnosing endometriosis was always surgically, um, where surgeon had to perform what's called a laparoscopy, where we make a small keyhole incisions in the abdomen, place a um, laparoscope or a camera inside the abdomen, we fill it with carbon dioxide gas so that we have space to see. And under high magnification, we visualize all the structures in the pelvis. And we would see lesions that have a typical appearance of endometriosis that would be removed surgically and then looked at under the microscope by a pathologist to confirm if endometriosis is present. But we've really shifted the way that we diagnose um, endometriosis. And uh, certainly in Europe and Canada, we've shipped, shifted to a clinical diagnosis. So if a patient has symptoms that are in keeping with endometriosis, typical, you know, as the ones I described, then we would classify that that patient likely has endometriosis and offer them medical management options to treat their condition. Because if one, if we wait to operate on every person that has symptoms consistent with endometriosis, it's already a very long backlogged wait time. And so because endometriosis, we now recognize that it's a chronic condition. And even if I go in and I operate, I diagnose it and I remove all of it, unfortunately, it can come back. And it does come back because of, you know, as I mentioned, the pathophysiology being potentially linked to retrograde menstruation. You know, if that patient goes on to continue to menstruate monthly, that endometriosis can come back. And based on research, we know that within five years after surgery, about 50% of patients have recurrence in their symptoms, in their pain. 
And so because of that, we usually recommend medical treatment after surgery to prolong the pain-free interval, to try to stop menstruation, and to try to reduce the chance of recurrence of the disease and the symptoms. And so because of that, because we're going to recommend medical treatment in a chronic long-term fashion, we can just start medical treatment early if the patient clinically meets the diagnostic criteria, and then the patient can have relief um, from their pain and from their symptoms. Now, there's also the option of ultrasound, and sometimes endometriosis can be picked up with a good ultrasound. So ultrasound's a little bit dependent on where it's done and who does the ultrasound. But certainly, if somebody's um, well-trained in ultrasound for endometriosis, then they could see cysts of endometriosis, sometimes the deeply infiltrating endometriosis that causes nodules that can be seen on ultrasound. As you've now heard, relying on surgical intervention is a major contributor to the long wait times for the diagnosis and treatment of endometriosis. The increasing availability of imaging-based diagnostics and different options for medical intervention are some ways clinicians are working to improve care for patients. However, there are other significant structural and social barriers that can impact the accessibility of treatment. We now hear from Dr. Croft about these ongoing structural challenges and some ways her and her colleagues are working to combat them. I'll start by saying the surgery for advanced endometriosis is very difficult and complex. It can be. And the so the, there's advanced training, but not all providers are trained to be able to manage advanced disease. So then that certainly creates situation where there's a lot of patients and then only a certain number of providers that can be able to support them with advanced surgical care. We're trying to help that there's myself as well as two other endometriosis specialists in the GTA have been working hard at establishing a central intake clinic for endometriosis to try to help because oftentimes patients may wait um, you know, quite a bit of time, even just to get into a provider, their GP may refer them to one provider who says, you know, I can't see this patient. So then after two weeks, they refer to another provider who says, my wait list is full, I'm closed, I'm not accepting referrals. So it may take them six weeks just to even find a provider who accepts them and then could take a year to to get in for a consultation and the patient's suffering that whole time. Their endometriosis could be worsening. They go to the emergency room. So by trying to gather all of the specialists across the GTA with one central place to refer, our hope is to streamline the process for primary care providers so that we can decrease the wait time. And that way, if whoever's available first, we can direct more appropriately the care. And it's been shown to really help in other specialties, some underserviced, uh, both like geographic locations, minorities, trans individuals who can find an even harder time seeking the appropriate care that they need. Alongside the unexpected endometriosis diagnosis, Amanda shares how her symptoms were often dismissed by her practitioners, which made her feel unheard. Let's hear more about the challenges she faced when trying to learn more about her condition. Quite honestly, I felt brushed off by a lot of practitioners with the symptom of pain during sex. It's like, oh, well, you know, you're not dying, so (laughs) just go get this ultrasound and 
you know, there's nothing we can really do beyond that. So it's interesting now looking back how a lot of these things have come full circle and we're kind of connecting the dots and, you know, maybe the fibroid contributed to that. Maybe it was the endometriosis. Who knows? But the the sort of lack of support for for me in that issue was, was glaring. <laughs> so I kind of fell into that a little bit of like, oh, okay, I'm going to do everything I can to fix this on my own. And anytime I would ask questions like, you know, is there any research on lifestyle changes that can help with fibroids? And I was often dismissed by my OB with those types of questions. And, and he knew I worked in research and he kind of laughed it off. and was like, oh, what a fun research project that would be. And I thought that's kind of condescending, but you know, I get it at the same time. They're specialists in their like little bubble in their area and doesn't really go beyond that. So there was definitely a feeling of like powerlessness at the time and I guess guilt and blame like, oh, I brought this on. This is something I did or because of something I didn't do that this happened. So, yeah, it was definitely a whirlwind of emotions. Amanda is not alone in this experience. The diagnosis of endometriosis can vary from person to person and can be a years long journey for many people. Unfortunately, the estimated average time to diagnosis can be about nine to 10 years, which obviously is a huge length of time, especially compared to other, you know, chronic conditions. And there's, there's different reasons for that. Most of us recognize, and based on the literature as well, that the first delay to diagnosis, which on average is about four to five years, takes place because patients feel that it's a normal part of being a woman to have pain with menstruation. And um, a lot of patients are brought up in an environment and where friends or family tell them that that's just normal and it's minimized. And so they don't recognize that it's an issue because of the societal impact surrounding acceptance of painful periods. Um, And it's interesting to note that 75% of patients who menstruate have what's called dysmenorrhea or painful menstruation. So that's a huge number, but 10% have endometriosis. So I think part of the problem is that because such a huge proportion of patients have dysmenorrhea or painful menses, patients that actually have endometriosis, their, their symptoms are minimized. They're told, you know, suck it up, take some Advil, it's fine. Um, there's nothing wrong. So it may take patients four to five years to present to a healthcare provider. And then unfortunately, it's under-recognized by a lot of healthcare providers, both primary care as well as gynecologists. And again, once again, patients are told, it's fine, it's just normal dysmenorrhea, try some anti-inflammatories or try the pill. And uh, they're not necessarily investigated or referred as early as they could be. Dr. Croft speaks about the treatment options available for people with endometriosis. She also shares with us some of the interesting history behind the birth control pill. So traditionally, a lot of patients were treated with the birth control pill alone. And um, fortunately, we have a number of different categories of medical treatments now that patients can try. So certainly one option is still 
the birth control pill, or combined hormonal contraceptive. So that could be the patch, the ring, anything that contains estrogen and progestin. Um, so I usually actually recommend that patients take it in a continuous fashion whereby they don't have their menstruation every month because patients with endometriosis get a lot of pain with menses. And theoretically, we think having menstruation worsens the disease as well. So if we can stop the period, it's very good for them. And, you know, it's a common misperception that patients need to have their period while taking the birth control pill. And I say all the time, even patients that don't have endometriosis, if they don't want their period, they don't need to have it. The only reason that the pill was invented the way it was back in the 60s when it was created was to get social acceptance and acceptance by the Catholic Church. They made it so that it mimicked a normal period, but you actually don't need to have a period while taking the birth control pill. The There's two other oral medications specifically for endometriosis that are Health Canada approved for endometriosis. One of them is a medication called Dinogest, and that's a progesterone only medication. And I'm using the generic names, not the trade names. The other medication is called Oligolix, and that is something called a GnRH antagonist. And what it does is it's a molecule that blocks something called the GnRH receptor in the brain, and it basically lowers the estrogen level in the patient so that because endometriosis is estrogen driven, by lowering the estrogen level, it will help. And both of those medications often will stop the period as well. And I would say the other first line medical treatment option would be progesterone IUD or IUS, intrauterine device, intrauterine system. And then there's also a medication called GnRH agonist therapy, and that's an intramuscular injection. And that medication uh, puts patients into a temporary medical menopause. And so with that medication, if you took it alone, then the patient could have a lot of negative side effects because I always tell patients, you know, menopause is not fun. And so being on that medication is equally not very fun if you take it alone. Patients could have side effects like hot flashes, vaginal dryness, sleep disturbance, headache. And so I always prescribe that with something called add back therapy. Also, it could cause osteoporosis or decrease in bone density if patients were on it longer than six months on its own. But if they take it with add back, which is just a little bit of estrogen and progesterone back, not enough estrogen and progesterone to stimulate the endometriosis, but enough to alleviate the side effects. And sometimes we need that if there's really significant endometriosis or the first line options are ineffective. And we generally say yes with a caveat that for most patients, the symptoms and the complications generally regress after menopause. However, patients that have very significant endometriosis with scarring or deeply infiltrating endometriosis, sometimes they even have that fibrosis or scarring persist after menopause, even after the estrogen is not there anymore. So they could still have potential impacts from the disease, even into menopause. The delay in diagnosis can lead to long periods of untreated endometriosis symptoms necessitating self-management.
Faced with ongoing pain and other debilitating symptoms, many individuals seek out alternative approaches sourced from peers and online outlets. Amanda shared her experience trying to manage her own symptoms in the window before she had surgery for her fibroids and endo. I had a lot of questions at the time and I kind of fell into like the wellness rabbit hole, I'll call it, of like, you know, is it something that I'm doing that causes cause these to grow like maybe it's stress I mean we're all in a pandemic maybe it was that that caused it maybe it was the IUD I don't know maybe it's something I'm eating or not eating I mean we saw it during COVID though yeah you know, we're living in the age of information we have so much information at our fingertips but that doesn't mean that it's good information and I think in this situation when people are struggling or desperately looking for a cure or fix. I mean, we all want that quick fix and that that easy cure. It's almost like a breeding ground for people to be taken advantage of and for grifters to come in and sell their products. And I don't want to like pass judgment on people because you do desperate times call for desperate measures sometimes. But and people at the end of the day, they need to do what's right for them. But when it comes to evidence based practice, it's also safety, right? Like we don't want to be taking random supplements that we bought off the internet that could exacerbate the issue or cause new issues. I firmly support, you know, the testing of <laughs> things that we're ingesting and treatments and randomized control trials and, you know, all of the measures that are in place for patient safety. But yeah, I mean, it would be nice if healthcare included more pieces around education and preventative healthcare and mental health support and looking at the person as a whole when they're being treated. And some areas are really great. Like I find cancer care is really great with that, treating the whole person. But when it comes to a lot of these women's health issues, I definitely think that's something that's lacking. Like. They're just looking at one thing like, okay, here's your uterus, here's the problem, we're going <laughs> to excise it and move on with our life. But we know that, you know, so much more comes into play there when you're dealing with a patient, a person. People living with these conditions often turn to online support groups filled with others from around the world with similar experiences. These groups allow people to connect with each other, share their stories, and learn more about their conditions. However, constant reminders of the magnitude of unaddressed challenges can feel overwhelming. So I joined a few groups on just on Facebook for women who have fibroids. And it was interesting to see, like my first shock was the sheer volume of women in these groups. And then the amount of women that were getting hysterectomies it was helpful in regards to, you know, how sharing how people manage their symptoms, sharing how they manage their surgery. Some of them got a similar surgeries to what I had. But after a while, I had to leave the groups because mentally it just became a bit much seeing the sheer volume of women who are suffering. And this a lot of them were from the United States as well. So issues came up around costs like, well, I can't afford the surgery. I can't afford the medication that, you know, is helping me with the symptoms. So just seeing that constantly, that barrage of, you know, women suffering would, just became a bit too much because then I just got angry, like, oh, why are, <laughs> why are so many women facing these issues and not getting the support they need? And also just a bit around how 
this stuff isn't really talked about until it affects you and then you realize like the gravity of it all and you think like why aren't people talking about this why aren't you know why isn't there prevent if there is preventative care or more research on you know how to manage these things or how to prevent them or how to fix them when they do happen to end off our discussion amanda shares some words of wisdom and advice for others living with endo you really have to you really have to advocate for yourself and that's hard i mean i'm i'm not an expert but i do have some knowledge just from where i've worked and i still find it hard to advocate for myself cuz when you're alone in that doctor's office like half naked with a drape over you it's kind of a vulnerable place to be so i totally get why women often leave those spaces feeling less than and feeling like what the heck just happened it's a really overwhelming place to be so i talk to other women who have similar issues it's amazing the things we don't talk about until it happens and then you realize like oh my good friend has something very similar or oh my aunt had this or my grandmother dealt with this it just helps like humanize your experience and validate your experience another thing i would highly suggest is therapy having a good therapist an objective person who doesn't know you to just be able to, you know, talk to again validate your experience and your emotions can be really cathartic <laughs> and helpful and also just try and, you know, take time for yourself. And one thing that oddly enough my therapist has said to me is like recognize what you've been through and kind of take a moment to acknowledge that and like celebrate the wins and acknowledge the hard times and the fact that you made it through and that you're you've come out on the other side and and you're okay and it's okay to be sad sometimes it's okay to be happy sometimes but you know everything's valid in that experience thank you to our guests Dr. Jamie Croft and Amanda Weston for joining us on this episode and of course thank you for listening Our next episode will continue the conversation with Naomi from Thea and Beth from Metal, who spoke to us about an innovative collaboration between their companies, which aims to improve the accessibility and experience of pop test. Stay tuned. This episode was hosted by myself, Maddie, and Hannah. Noor, Hannah, Maddie, and Mayoa conducted the interviews. Atifa, Vina, and Reina developed content. Reina and Tima were our audio engineers. Anam helped with promotions, and Noor and Atifa were our executive producers. Keep an eye out for an article written by Vina. We would also like to acknowledge that Toronto was founded on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people, and we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.